and welcome back to Med Talk Podcast. We've got a full house today for the first time in a while. Um, joined by Reese Armstrong, Laura Hughes, and Ian Bolland, and I'm Dave Gray. So let's crack on. Who's up first? Well, you haven't been here for a while, Dave. I haven't. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, what have you been up to? Been busy? Uh, no, I went to Scotland on holiday and didn't think about med tech or digital health for a week. It's disgraceful. Yeah, I know. But um, I don't think that you need to always think about these things. You're allowed to take some time away from it. A little bit. Are you going on holiday? You're going to Florida? Yeah, September. Nice. Can't wait. See all the med tech offerings Florida has to offer, you know, all the, all the pharmaceutical companies. I assume that's why you're going. Yeah, yeah that's nothing to do with Universal. Well, we're doing a Florida issue in EPM next. Florida issue? Yeah. Nice. Laura, holidays? Um, I am going on holiday. I have also been on a trip, the MediLink East Midlands Innovation Day. I went with you, started this month. It was good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was it really was, good. It um, was not really a holiday. I did ask about holidays, but you want to talk about our trip to Nottingham <laughs> for one afternoon. But it was a good it was afternoon. A good day. Yeah, there was some good speakers actually, um, and we always enjoy working with MediLink on stuff like that. So, um, by the way, shout out to MediLink. Anybody who's not familiar with them, Google them. We do loads of stuff with them. Um, there's lots of benefits to being a member of MediLink. We're members and um, get quite a lot from it. So. Shout out to them. Ian, you kind of go wherever the football goes. Yeah, that's pretty much me, though. <laughs> yeah, you just got, you've just been around Europe quite a bit this year. I have indeed. Um, you like the Everton squad? It's a good job that there's no, there's no sight on this, because the death stare I've given you is unbelievable. <laughs> he likes the other ones. Um, <laughs> so, let's, yeah. let's talk about something work-related. Yeah. What do you know about nudge theory? Nudge theory. Mm. Not much, but it sounds like it. You do know quite a lot about it, but it's a term that um, I don't think... I think it might be an Americanism. I don't think it's a term that comes up that much over here, but we've written loads about nudge theory without knowing it, because it's a term that I wasn't that familiar with either, and then when I read it, I realised it's basically everything about digital health. It's nudge So theory. nudge theory is digital health. What does it stand for? It's got to stand for something. It doesn't stand for anything. It literally means nudging. So your Fitbit, Laura, when you haven't done enough steps, should nudge you to remind you that you need to do more steps. Yeah, it does vibrate. Yeah, so it's like um, any kind of behavioural training thing. doesn't just apply in health at all. Um, it applies in all sorts of different things. But I just wanted to ask a big question about nudge theory. Okay. How much of a nudge is too much of a nudge? Within healthcare? Yeah. That's a tough one. I don't know. I, I'm not a, you know, You're not a nudger. clinician. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm not the best person to ask that question to, but I think the small notifications you get through the likes of wearables and fit, Fitbits, asking you to move more, drink more water, be done your daily exercises, whatever. Are great, but in what applications are we talking about nudging? I have something going into the next issue of MedTech Innovation about a um, device. It's not actually about the device, it's about the process of getting the um, patent sorted for this device because it was quite a complicated thing to do. And um, stay tuned to the next 
issue of MedTech Innovation to read all about that. That's a contribution from um, our friends at Marks and Clerk who were responsible for looking after the legal and IP side of this particular innovation. Um, but sort of in the process of, of writing up the article, I got interested in this particular device. Um, I think I've got a feeling you might have written about it in the past, Reese. Mm -hmm. um, Waitrose trialled it and it basically is a wearable device which, um, first of all, the user, I think they do a saliva swab and they pop it in a box, send it away and they get a DNA analysis report sent back from the company and it tells them and it tells the nudge wearable device via the smartphone app how prone that individual is to certain conditions like diabetes oh, yeah. and pre-diabetes and then the idea is as you're doing your shopping in Waitrose or potentially in the future more sort of, um, realistic supermarkets um, the idea would be that it tells you whether or not you're making a good purchasing decision for your health and I think it sounds like an awesome device but then I thought has nudge theory become too invasive and too intrusive it's, and this is something that comes up a lot in digital health yeah so it is quite intrusive about how you shop because you sort of want that control yourself and you'd hope that individuals would be smart enough and to you know shop towards their own health needs and well-being but clearly by the case of a lot of the health issues in the UK and in Europe, that's, that's not the case. So, if, if, if it takes a device to help people shop smarter, eat healthier, then that's good. And like, at the same time, you don't, you don't need to purchase it. What is the difference between, a, between somebody choosing to buy that as a consumer device and somebody being prescribed it by their doctor? What's the difference on... Do, do you think that would affect how successfully people use it. Yeah, I think if, if you had a professional see use this device, it's going to help you, then people would probably take more, put more effort into, you know, what, what they're buying. I think a lot of people buy Fitbits, buy wearables, buy sporting gear, you know, buy veg for one week in an effort to, to live healthier <laughs> and then stop using it or, you know, take short shortcuts or you know, start eating un unhealthily again. Yeah, um, you've just touched on something there, actually. I, I, in, my, in the process of doing this article, I got reading about nudge theory, and um, somebody wrote a piece online a few weeks ago, and they basically talked about the idea of incomplete nudges, and this is where nudge theory really starts to fall down, particularly in the age of digital health, and particularly with things like Fitbits, and this example that we're talking about that's been, that has been trialled in Waitrose. So an incomplete nudge is something that doesn't get that person, as the name suggests, doesn't get them all the way over the line. So it may be that the behaviour change is there in a sense because yes, they buy some salad instead of like a big McDonald's cheeseburger or whatever. But if that person is sort of psychologically predisposed to the junk food, there's still a fairly good risk that that salad's going to be in a fridge going brown and smelly seven days on and they just reverted to a junk food option. I'm being maybe a bit cynical there but I'm also sort of including myself in that group because I know that I'm quite guilty of sort of half-hearted attempts at lifestyle change. Yeah and I think it's in people's disposition to just 
try things for a little bit and then get bored of them. Yeah. The quirk dies off pretty quickly. You can start using that for however long thinking. I'll, I'll follow this exercise routine, I'll follow this diet. It's a new toy, basically. Yeah. yeah. You, the, the machine wears off and you revert back to your old habits, which and these are habits which have been ingrained over however many, many years you've been living a lot, and, a lot of the times. And in the process of that, there may be, the, the same article suggested that there may be a, um, during that process, there may be a point at which the user becomes reactive to the device and actually starts to become a bit resentful and feel like, what, you know, this isn't working for me and why are you telling me, why are you making me feel bad about this? <laughs> like some scarred relationship type of Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The love, the love is lost between the device and the person. And then that's a bad experience and then that person is never likely to want that kind of interference in their mm -hmm. life again. So it kind of has a long-term impact as well. But is that not the, s the same effect in taking a certain drug? Medicine. You, the day you've been prescribed and you think, well, this is not working for me and then you come off it because you felt bad while you were on it in the first place. It's a huge problem, isn't it, with um, adherence, is that people don't give things enough time, um, or generally they fall out of habits quite quickly, and then um, it's very hard to get that person to, that person then in their head they feel, I tried that, it didn't work for me. That's the case for people not following the doctor's advice, or the advice given in a prescription. Adherence is the case where people either feel to they can be taking medication at the right time, mm. or they or they stop taking it because they either think it, it's it, it's done, we don't need to finish that antibiotic course because we think the better, or that the side effects are you know too too much. Yeah. Um. So could be the case where a device is really useful for that, and you see in sort of medicine packages now where they're given little notifications, they can link back to an app or something like that. Yeah, I mean that's the you're right. That's the irony of this is devices like this are one of the reasons they're launched is to make adherence easier and make it a more pleasant experience for people to um, first of all pre prevent illness and second of all if they have illness to treat it um, by making sensible choices but um, so was this device being launched as a clinical type of consumer or like a, a clinical device rather than a consumer device good question don't know Sure <laughs> <laughs> um, but I will find out for you and we can update on the next podcast. But if anyone is listening um, and they have any thoughts on how behaviour change technology and nudge theory technology can go further in completing the nudge and making sure that um, the user stays on the right track, then we definitely want to hear from you and we would follow this one up in a future episode so you can email us at david.gray that's g-r-a-y at rapidnews.com not his personal account that's not my personal account but you can email me and um yeah i'd love to hear yeah. your thoughts or just tweet the pod that's just i think it's just med med talk pod twitter yep. handle or leave it in the comments we check all the comments yep uh so on that note you've been discussing diabetes recently ian um on the topic of adherence and well-being and people making healthier choices. Yeah, we um, we recently spoke to a Dr. Roger Hederson from Lever Healthcare as well. I believe we've got a few clips lined up, please. Yeah, we shall line those up in a minute. But first, what have you... Is this on the back of a report that you've been discussing diabetes or...? Well, there was something that interesting that just dropped into my, uh, my inbox, mm. really, of nearly half of type 2 diabetes have hidden their condition from family, work or friends. Now, I 
always thought that um, given the conversation that has existed around type 2 diabetes for the past few few years or so that people would have been more open about it, I thought it was a striking statistic. Yeah, that's quite surprising, especially given the prevalence of their diabetes on the NHS in the, in the UK. I think there is a stigma though. There's that kind of opinion that you brought it on yourself with type 2 diabetes, which isn't necessarily true, but I think that's the problem. Well, and the fact that people will just think, oh, you've overeaten on sugar yeah, and you've got Yeah, I think some people are embarrassed. No, but the thing the thing is about type two diabetes though there is the conversation that it can can be reversed. I mean, from personal experience, my a close family member of mine has has the condition and lost a, a lot of weight just because they changed the diet and yeah. and, and exercised. But it is getting into good behavioural habits mm -hmm. probably relates nicely back to nose theory. Well, it does as well. And what Dr. Henderson discusses is the rise of digital technologies and the way they can sort of um, help people monitor the conditions better and just eat, eat healthier so maybe there's a case for devices to be clinically sort of diagnosed to people mm. uh, as ways to, 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 live, to live healthier. It's interesting on um, uh, sort of, I'm going off on a tangent now, this has nothing to do with um, medtech or digital health, but I know that a lot of, well, I don't know, I've, a lot, I don't know if it's a lot, but I don't know how many, but I know that there have been a lot of headlines about NHS doctors opting to prescribe ultra-low calorie diets or very low calorie diets or, or ketosis diets, whatever you want to call them, things that basically um, power through all of the kind of layers of fat and things that surround your liver and your vital organs and basically this is one of the things that um, kind of isn't helpful for people who are um, with diabetes or with pre-diabetes and so these ultra low calorie diets have recently kind of gone from being a, a daily male fad to a sort of clinically valid I think um, but again I don't know, I don't know how, how many but will be interesting to see how the, the guidance and treatment for diabetes continues to change and I think we're sort of at this weird point with diabetes now where we're realising just how manageable it could be with but it all comes down to lifestyle changes. So what's happened with digital technology is that especially with smartphone use is that we're now in a situation where we can directly access um, patients with diabetes and rather than getting them back to clinics every three months or six months or wait to see a GP every sort of few weeks or go to a GP clinic every six months, we can actually have a rolling pattern where that diabetic patient continuously has monitoring of their diabetes control, can, has continuous monitoring and support with their lifestyle changes because the key thing here is that intensive lifestyle behavior will modify diabetes use. There's a very good study in the Journal of the American Medical Association which showed that diabetes can be reversed in over 50% of patients via lifestyle change alone. Now that's huge. If I was to wave a magic wish wand and overnight every patient with type 2 diabetes in the UK came down to a normal weight half of them would be off medication at a stroke. It is that dramatic.
So that was Dr. Roger Henderson from Lever Healthcare discussing some of uh, his thoughts on digital technologies and uh, diabetes. But his point about reversing type 2 diabetes is quite interesting because I'm not sure if it's just because of the industry we're based in, but do you think many people know that you can potentially reverse type 2 diabetes with you know the, the strict lifestyle changes that he, he, he discusses there? I'm of the opinion that I don't think people have managed to separate type 1 and type 2 diabetes yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way I was always thought was, the, I thought the phrase controlled by diet was followed by type, followed type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. in, the, in the sense that it's almost a choice in this is how you go about, you can, you can manage this condition yourself rather than you need to take medication all day. Yeah. Can you reverse type 2 diabetes, like truly reverse it to the point where you are able to live with a normal diet and a normal level of exercise or do you always if if you get if you reach a point where you your doctor says i can no longer detect diabetes do you always have to live in that sort of super low calorie and high activity no i think you can reverse it because there's been studies that have been recently put out in the last year about like case studies of people managing to reverse type 2 diabetes with, I think it was, like you mentioned, super low cal calorie diets. But I think it was also the case for them where they just found out that they had type 2 diabetes and then through quite sudden action they managed to reverse it fairly quickly instead of sort of living for a long time with the condition. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you reverse, if you manage to reverse the diabetes condition itself but you're already suffering from the implications of it, then um, I guess you wouldn't see that as a genuine reversal. Not yet, Laura, do you know? I thought you could reverse it, but I think it's rare. Good. I mean, I fundamentally believe that the family member I referred to before has reversed it, so to speak, in terms of the blood sugar readings are normal. If they were, if they were to have a high energy or high high in sugar mm. drink, it wouldn't it wouldn't cause such a spike. But they're now in a stage where they would never want to take the risk of getting back to the stage where they were overweight and it was it was spots showing up on a background retinopathy, for an example. For example. Yeah, so they've managed their lifestyle diet in, in, in such a way where now it's just not normal for them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a device to manage type two diabetes. So BioCorp have created a smart sensor cap, and what this does is it attaches to Sanofi's um, in. Sanofi's insulin pen and it's able to measure the injection dose, the date and the time and then this information is then fed back to an application on your mobile phone and it produces reports for up to 90 days and it's meant to help people manage their diabetes. So younger people, maybe teenagers who as a child they're adults, like their parents have helped manage it and mm -hmm. they can manage it a bit better. Cool. Yeah, so that leads back to your whole nudge feed a bit. We don't discuss these, um, deli we deliberately don't talk to each other about our um, ideas that we're going to bring to the podcast before we do it because it would ruin the natural flair of the, of the podcast. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting that we've all kind of picked things that are very, very strongly connected. Yeah. Why are you yeah. laughing? Because um, yeah, it's, it's uh, ironic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure it's ironic, but yeah. Yeah. Maybe, well, maybe not. Were we all looking at cakes beforehand or something? Cakes? Mm. High sugar. Who said cakes? I did. <laughs> so tell us more about this device. 
Um, that was it, really. That's how it <laughs> <laughs> There's a device out there. Um, you have to bring well, more than that to the it's table. It's not um, marketed yet, but it's in negotiations with Sanofi, but they're just kind of, I think, just getting a feel to see if it was something that would work. What do you think about it? I think it's a good idea. I think type 1 diabetes is something that's quite difficult to live with and to manage, mm -hmm. especially if you go from being a child to managing it yourself. It must be very cumbersome to, to live with every day, having to take your shots and everything. Topically, um, Theresa May made a few headlines during her premiership around her adoption of connected health tech for managing her type 1 diabetes and she could often be seen wearing a little um, yeah. Yeah. Wear, wear device. Little yeah, it is a yeah. lethal one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a question on the practicality of that device. Does that mean that it, you don't need to, to go out and buy a, a, a separate uh, glucose monitor? That it's effectively your phone is going to be the glucose monitor? Or? Um, I think you'd still need a glucose monitor. I think all this does is attach to the insulin pen and measure the dose and the date and the time. That's right. it. That's all it so, so you need a glucose monitor as well? Okay. I, 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 was, get, I was getting too confused, but apologies. Yeah, I think this is just a little device that you put onto the pen and that's all it measures, those three things. Right. So you mentioned earlier, Dave, that uh, everyone had stories on diabetes. Yeah. Just magically blinked. Everyone was on the same page. Just happened to be connected. Just happened to Connected, help. Yeah. Do you get it? End of podcast on that, I think. Perfect. It's rounded off. Do you have something on diabetes? No, not really. What? Don't you get that we're all trying to talk about diabetes here? I, 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 I know what you're going to talk about because I've seen your notes and I really like the sound of this story. <laughs> this sounds right up my street. Yeah. Careful what you say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is what I brought to the table. Headline of a week. The FDA has issued big penis warnings. Oh boy. Gotta watch out for them. I knew it would come to this. It just means a diplomatic visit between the US and the UK. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be a new blimp, isn't there? I think so. I think yeah. there has been one already. <laughs> Tell it's us about these things. Uh, so, what the FDA has issued warnings for is a sexual enhancement product that was flagged by the FDA for containing an undeclared ingredient. And uh, the ingredient was? The Ironically, the ingredient is called slidenophil. Slidenophil. Slid it's the benefit of working with a pharmacist. Slidenophil. <laughs> I like slidenophil better. It sounds like a wacky racist Slidenophil. Yeah. Sli. Dig that to these Slidenophil. You just call it sli sliden. Sliden, yeah. Slidenophil. That's more standards. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, slidenophil is uh, the active ingredient in Viagra. So uh, technically, it's doing its job, this sexual enhancement product. But the issue is that sildenafil can interact with nitrates found in other uh, medications, potentially upping people's blood pressure to dangerous levels. So it interacts with nitrates, and people are people with diabetes or with sort of. Um, See, I knew how to diabetes. Yeah, there you go. Linked it back to diabetes. <laughs> yeah, people with diabetes. Uh, High blood pressure and heart disease often take these types of products, so it can negatively affect, mm. you know, their medication. Not, not as exciting. Not as exciting as it, as it sounds, but, but very important. But the actual product itself. Did you know this, Laura, with your background? About the product. Mm. 
I, I knew they could with the diabetes and things. I didn't yeah. know it was being sold like that. Yeah, well, the issue there is that it's not really a, you know, a medication as, as, as such. So people are just buying these, the, the big penis product, as it is actually called, to um. <laughs> I don't know why there's all this giggle. I know. It's it's enhance my life. Issue. No, but quick note: sildenafil was originally developed to treat cardiovascular uh, ailments. I knew that. Yeah, uh, I, th I think it's quite a common story for clinical trials same, and stuff like that. Same with minoxidil too. Was it? Yeah. And what's that used in? Regain, which is oh, okay. a hair replacement foam for, well, men and women, but um, that was originally developed as, as a, um, it's like a, what was it? It was, it was definitely some cardiovascular. I only know it for hair loss. Mm. You only know it for hair loss. Yeah. It was, I, I think in the fifties or sixties, um, minoxidil was developed for, as you can tell, I know lots about hair loss products. <laughs> I didn't want to say. <laughs> and now, and now, um, they say that minoxidil can cause problems for your heart. So, um, yeah, it's kind of come full circle. Yeah. Back to. Um, sorry, sorry. I'd rather talk about <laughs> hair loss because that's my environment. That's your bag. Yeah, that's my thing. Uh, yeah. So during trials, sildenafil was working. It was um, working by dilating the heart's. Well, it was meant to dilate the heart's blood vessels for people with cardiovascular problems. Unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you look at, at it, sildenafil instead dilated the blood vessels in the penis. Yeah, right. What a lovely image. Yeah. yeah. And that's how we got Viagra. Happy accident. Ha yeah, happy accident. Mm. Happy accident of clinical trials. On that bombshell, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, cheers, you can catch us on SoundCloud, iTunes, I did Spotify. The, I did the, I did the goodbye. Yeah, I, I know, dear, but it would be meaning to plug this at the end for 15 episodes now, right. so. Um, yes, come and find us on. Do you want to do this now? Yes, you can find us on the internet. Thanks. <laughs>